0: Hi everyone, it's Gillian. Welcome to a bonus track from Sexing History. This track features an extended version of my interview with Mark S. King from our most recent episode, Sex Over the Phone. That episode explores the history of phone sex lines in the 1980s. Mark worked on gay phone sex lines and also owned his own phone sex business. And his story helps us better understand the complex relationships between gay history, the history of sex work, the history of the AIDS epidemic, and the telecommunications revolution of the 1980s. If you want to learn more about Mark S. King's fascinating life, you can purchase his memoir, A Place Like This, on Amazon.com.
1: Now, please enjoy our conversation. Uh, My name is Mark King. I am a uh, 57-year-old gay man living in Baltimore these days. But in the 1980s, I went by the name of David on gay phone sex lines. Uh, one of which I worked for, and then another of which I owned, called Telerotic, which became uh, one of the largest gay phone sex companies uh, in the industry. I started as a struggling actor in Los Angeles in the early 80s. I was in Los Angeles trying to make it as an actor, and I started working for a company called Hotline. And uh, I was employed as a caller, what they called a caller. There were customers and there were callers, and uh, the customer would call the service. We, they took out full-page ads in all the big, slick, gay magazines, and the customer would call that ad and get an office where they would leave their credit card information. They would check out the credit card and then ask the customer, what kind of guy do you want to talk to? What are you into? That sort of thing. And a few minutes later, lo and behold, someone would call the customer back. The caller, the employee, who, how do you like that, was exactly what that customer had requested. And our job as callers were to take on that persona. The the, the company would call me and say, okay, you're calling Bob Jones, he lives in Milwaukee, uh, here's his phone number, and he wants someone 25 to 30, dark, hairy, muscular cut, hung top and uh, just kind of a basic call. Nothing, you know, maybe there was no particular fancy or what have not. So you would call that customer and you would be exactly that. Very, very close to what it is they had requested. Uh, And so my job was to take on that persona, make sure I sounded exactly like what he wanted, make sure I sounded authentic and, um, and lead him through some sort of, you know, fantasy call. And, uh, uh, and do a good job of it. Leave him with some sort of preview of coming attractions in terms of something that might capture his imagination so that he would call back and ask for me. Because I wanted, I wanted, a, 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 I wanted a request. Because I got paid more if they called back and said, I want to talk to David again so i got more for those
0: that's that's amazing did they offer you training on how to speak with clients
1: there was some training yes uh, uh, for the comp- first company i worked for there was a general kind of training where they would first they they would first of all they'd make sure of, of a few things a that i was honest and i wasn't going to try to Um, exploit the customer by giving him my phone number and saying hey call me on the side and I'll charge you less that sort of thing and um, wanted to make sure that we weren't into phone sex ourselves that this was not something we were doing for our own sexual edification because um, you know although you want to convince the customer that you're totally with him and that you're masturbating right along with him the, the fact is is that when we masturbate, our, li- our thinking is not exactly linear. <laughs> you know, we're all over the place. Well, you have to lead this customer through this fantasy and it has to kind of have a build to it. And you know, you don't want to get too you know, fucking too fast, right? You want to talk about other things first, you know, so that there's a, a, a build and there's, you know, a, and so that you get, you are manipulating the customer exactly where you want them. You are in control of that call you're going to probably be doing most of the talking. And uh, you want to establish that the customer is naked and ready to go. If he's got his clothes on, then we're going to have to stop and make sure he gets all his clothes off before we go any further. You want to make, you know, so there's there's certain kind of parameters. Make sure the customer is naked, walking through the, the uh, a fantasy slowly but assuredly. And then, if he doesn't hang up as soon as he gets off, then give him a little preview of coming attractions or some pillow talk, so that he'll call back and request you.
0: Did the conversations ever veer towards the non-sexual?
1: Yes, I, they did. Uh, it was—I would say that about half of the customers would hang up um, soon after after they got off, or maybe even right away. You know. Um, shame or panic or what not may have set in and they would hang up but some of them would stick around a little bit and of course it would sound as if that i had gotten on that i had had an orgasm as well you know with them you know and so i you know i was uh, uh i was you know uh very good at faking it of faking all of it uh, actually uh, and and that was kind of the whole point you're faking all of it you're faking who you are what your background is how well you are hung what you are into sexually you're faking it all but it's very interesting because as a struggling actor in California at the time this wasn't there was no it's, what's interesting about that dynamic with a customer is they have to believe it's real um, there isn't there there's there's only a minimal you know uh, um, what is it um, you know where they, they're, they're willing to just kind of Go along, uh, you know. They want to feel as if it's real. So there's not, you know, you, you have to sound like it's the real thing. So this is kind of like improvisation, but as natural as it can possibly be. And uh, and yes, of course, there was there was pillow talk sometimes. Sometimes, you know, you would find out where they lived, and um, they would share things about their lives. There, these were these were primarily uh, gay men who lived not in big cities where they had a lot of options in terms of sexual options these were men who lived in second tier cities or small towns uh, for whom there were not a lot of 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 options uh, sexually speaking and so they were relying on services like ours now of course it's also true that as my, as you know, I worked for one company for a while, turns out I was really good at it, so I opened my own, called Teleronic. And most of our customers came from small towns where they were, you know, relying on us. And of course, as AIDS came, you know, appeared on the horizon and became more and more of a threat, More and more people were, I I think that that certainly played a role in the popularity of of those phone sex companies at the time.
0: Can you tell me how you reached these customers in small towns? How did they hear about you?
1: We we had, uh, of course, you know, the technology, of course, was so, you know, (laughs) primitive at the time. This was before... Uh, th- this was before Grinder and hookup apps on your phone. This was before chat rooms on AOL. A- this was before, part, you know, uh, party 976, you know, party lines. This was before all of that. This was simply an 800 number of people called, used a credit card, it cost $45 to speak to somebody. And those calls lasted an average of about 13 minutes. It was not cheap. And uh, we advertised through full page glossy ads in all of the big gay uh, slick publications, you know, all of the slick, you know, uh, nudie <laughs> publications, you know, call us, uh, you know, uh, explicit live calls, you know, uh, enormous stable of men of every kind to talk to, you know, and they figured well, we're talking, you know, I, I think that there was a certain suspension of disbelief Because they were calling Los Angeles, and it seemed, I don't know, believable to them that maybe they would have, you know, a uh, blonde bodybuilding surfer dude with an enormous penis who was a top uh, to talk to. Why not? It's Los Angeles.
0: That's amazing. Do you remember the first call you ever did?
1: I remember the first, I guess, few that I ever did. I was very nervous about it. And, um, uh, and, and of course I had, you know, I had a lot to learn about kind of being in control and all of that. Um, it was, uh, it was a little nerve wracking because, you know, you want to, you want to come off as this sexual, you know, uh, you know, Superman sort of guy that is just too good to be believed. And so I learned early on, I had to have lots of details, lots of salient details about Uh, why I was built so magnificently and my part-time job as a volunteer firefighter or the fact that I just retired from the minor leagues, baseball, you whatever all of those details were that had to be kind of tossed out in a casual way. Um, um, uh, Oh, you, you don't believe that I have a 10 inch dick. You should see my brothers because I'm not the biggest one, you know, Whatever I could throw out there that seemed to be kind of just enough detail to be convincing.
0: How did it make you feel when you were doing these first calls?
1: I, I, I saw it as a sport of it. I was very young. I was in my early 20s. Um, I, because I was a trained actor, I did have a lot of variety in my voice. I could be a leather guy. I could be a, I could be a very butch, you know, southern guy. Um, and uh, and David almost always had a low voice, and it, there's always a little kind of southern lilt to it. There's something about that that guys responded to. But I could also be a young surfer dude, and a uh, you know, you know. So there there would be a lot of variety in any given evening of doing you know calls. Um, how did it make me feel? It it was sporting. It was all in good fun. It didn't bother me one way or another, I just wanted to do a good job, do it quickly, and then do another call because uh, I was getting paid $5 a call or $8 a call if they requested me. Uh, and and before very long, I was being requested a lot, and that's why I eventually opened up my own company after working for the first one because I was doing one request after another of people asking for David. and. David was different for whoever it was that called. I had a Rolodex file of all of my customers. And if John Smith called and requested David, I would look in my Rolodex and go, Oh, John Smith. Okay, for John Smith, I am a 32-year-old ex-minor league baseball player, hairy-chested, hung-top. Oh, and the last time I talked to John Smith... Um, we had sex on the beach. We talked about sex on the beach. Oh, and I told him the last call that I was going to try to have sex with my trainer and I would let him know about how that went. Okay. That's who I am for John Smith. So I called the guy back. Hey, it's David. How you doing? Hi. uh, Oh, yeah. I had it. Yeah. I finally hooked up with my trainer. Let me tell you all about it. So, so I had, (laughs) I, I had copious notes on who these, uh, who David was for each one of these guys who were calling.
0: How did you remember which voice to do if you had variety in your voice?
1: Because uh, my rolodex card would tell me everything I needed to know. You know, um, if I mean, if it was a new a new customer, then I would go by what the office told me. Oh, you know, he wants a guy that's you know, you know, uh, late twenties, you know, hairy chested top or whatever it is. And so that I would give him the, that would be call, and it would be a, a a basic call, a basic call meaning we were it was going to be about sucking and fucking and jacking off, or as we called it an SFJO, San Francisco Joe. Oh, it's a San Francisco Joe, that's just a regular call, and uh, no particular fantasy, no no particular you know nothing nothing out of the ordinary. So they would get they would get you know all my greatest hits, David's basic kind of walk through a basic, you know sexual experience. And um, and so it was easy to keep track because I, I, if I had talked to them before, I had notes. I had a little Rolodex card and I would look them up and I'd know exactly who I was for them before. And any special notes that came, you know, I'd, I'd have a notation there so that they would realize I remembered them and that they were special to me.
0: Did you ever meet any of them in real life?
1: No. No. Um, First of all, you know, it's funny. I never had to worry. When I owned my own company and I had people working for me, that's just nothing we ever had to worry about because we didn't look anything like we said we did. I mean, at that time, I was a tall, skinny, redheaded actor. You know? Um, You know, so unless they were into, like, an Opie Taylor, you know, Howdy Doody-looking guy, I didn't uh, have to worry about that did I, I got I got requested oh my god I'm I, you're so hot and why don't you come to Denver and I'll pay your way and all of that and I'd say no sorry dude I can't really do that you know I'm you know I'm 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 seeing you know I'm I'm engaged to a girl and just, I can't get away or whatever it is you know so um so yeah I got plenty of offers <laughs> but uh they didn't want me showing up at their door and so that was kind of the uh the the Uh, the insurance that something like that was never going to happen.
0: What was the relationship of yourself, your own desires and fantasies to the ones you played out on these phone lines?
1: I was very calculating about what I was doing for them. It was all about what I knew they wanted, especially if they had a particular fantasy that they wanted to play out you know, making it feel like, oh my gosh, you're into that too? Wow, that's great, you know? And um, uh, like we shared this, this whatever it was, this, you know, obscure fantasy, and, and I was so excited to be able to talk about it. So it was, from a sexual standpoint, um, I was able to separate it from what my sex life was at the time. I had a partner at the time, a boyfriend, a, a long-term relationship. Um, it didn't change the sex we were having, uh, really at all. Um, it, uh, I got a little tired of talking about it. (laughs) I'm more of a doer, not a talker. So, uh, it's funny if I did hook up with other people, you know, and they would be a talker, (laughs) it'd be kind of like, oh, please don't, you know, that's, that's shop talk. Let's just do it. (laughs) You know, um, it, it, uh, so it didn't really have an effect on my sex life per se. I, there were ways in which it affected me emotionally or mentally after a while. And, and I think that what happened is that over the course of years, I talked to a lot of these guys um, who seemed to have unlimited resources who would call me once or twice a week for years. And we developed a relationship of sorts. I knew where they lived, what they thought of their parents, uh, who had been rejected by their families, who was uh, trying to date and it's not working out. Or maybe they met somebody and they mentioned the fact that they, they started dating somebody. And then I wouldn't hear from them for a while because maybe it was working out. Maybe I'd never hear from them again. Or after six months, they would call back and because it didn't work out. So they were sharing deeply personal stuff with me about their, not only about what they wanted sexually, because let's face it, they, they were revealing things to me that the many things that they may have never said out loud before. You know, I was a stranger on the phone, they'd been paying for this service, they are masturbating and they blurt things out about what they really want, you know? And I would receive that information and exploit it and go, "Oh my God, you like that too, oh great, you know and we would go on to that, and suddenly they would have this con the sexual confidant that they could share these things with. I, on the other hand, was revealing nothing that was true, nothing. I had a whole persona, I had a background for David about that that fit the that fits the fantasy and um And so they were getting nothing from me that was real or authentic, although they thought they were, you know, they, they, they certainly were convinced that they were, and that's why they felt safe to reveal all these things about themselves. So I was completely counterfeit. They were, they were real. And that did mess with me after, after a few years and hundreds and thousands of calls with people and that was that they had put trust in me. They had put, um, they had revealed, they had opened themselves up to me in such a way and it felt as if they were getting the same thing from me. Now you might say, look, I was just doing a job. This is, this, is the way, this is the way it was, I wasn't hurting them. And that's true, but just from, I don't know, the way it felt to me after a while, the lie, the fact that I was a complete lie to them, um, when I said goodbye to a lot of them, when I when I eventually sold my company and moved on, I spent a couple of months saying goodbye to clients that I had been talking to dozens of times over years, and uh, they were upset or they were sad. And oh, well, do you think maybe we could talk every once in a while? You know, here, you know, you you have my number if you want to ever call me. They would tell me. You know and I, I'm gonna miss you and and uh, there was a real sense of loss on their part and and there was a loss on my part but I couldn't reveal it I couldn't I, you know, it's not like I ever lifted the veil and said you know this has been a lot of fun I just want you to know that I'm an actor in Los Angeles and I'm actually a, a tall skinny redhead and um, um, but it's been a lot of fun you know, that would have crushed them to know that I had been lying the whole time. I had to keep up that charade, like until the bitter end, um, even while listening to their own heartache and sense of loss when it came to an end.
0: What do you think it is about phones that, and talking to strangers that allows for that kind of intimacy and disclosure?
1: Well, um, you only have words. And uh, you. Uh, and think about it. You know, the phone calls, especially, I mean, I don't know if it's that, that aspect of this has changed all that much. We're having kind of an intimate phone call right now. I don't know you. You don't know me. We don't know what each other looks like or anything. We're going by audio cues where we're, there's a sense of kind of. Intimacy and the fact that I'm kind of curled up in my favorite chair right now, sharing all this with you. Um, these guys were lying in bed, naked. Maybe we had already had the sex talk, and that part was done. And now they were just talking a little bit about life, you know. And I would allow time for that if it felt, if it felt like that it was important because it would make them call back again. See, I was, I was a. <laughs> I was quite a um, formidable young man in terms of exploiting these um, relationships. Um, But yeah, I think that's what it is, is that the phone is actually a really kind of intimate form of communication.
0: Why do you call it exploitation?
1: Um, Well, you know, it's funny because they might not the the customers I talked to might not consider it exploitation they were getting what they wanted um and even if they were uh, did have a suspension of disbelief they might at the end of the day figure that I was probably faking it maybe or or wasn't what I said I would be but of course the ones that were calling back again and again were convinced that I was exactly what I said I was so I guess it was exploitative because I was exploiting their need I was exploiting their loneliness. I was exploiting... Uh, of course, look, I didn't go chasing after them. They called me. They, 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 you know, so I do understand, look, it's not like I feel that guilty about it. It was a service we provided and all of that. I just think that what people don't quite understand is it wasn't frivolous. It wasn't always frivolous. There were emotional connections that happened on these calls, especially when you're dealing with closeted gay man in a small town that feel forlorn. That didn't have other people they could talk to, not just about sex, but about being a gay man in 1984 in a small town. That's 35 years ago. That is a long time before we had the kind of acceptance we have today.
0: Did you ever meet any of your co-workers at first?
1: I did meet other co-workers, and we were, by and large, actors or people somehow, you know, talented and able to do this sort of thing. And actually, there were people that worked for that company and for me uh, who were actors who went on to be actors that you would know, went on to do television and film.
0: I want to hear about Telerotics. I want to hear about your company and how it got started and your experiences with it.
1: I I think I had one other one or two other employees. I did almost all the calls myself to begin with because I didn't have to pay somebody else to do them. But that meant a lot of hours um, chained to the house, basically, so that uh, we could do it. I would often be the person that answered the phone and took the order. In my regular voice, and then uh, would be the and then would call that customer back as David, as my online my my phone persona, and they would never know the difference. Sometimes that customer would request David over the course of a long time and talk to David several times, and then they would call the office once and say, "You know, I'd like to try somebody else. Just you know, who else you got?" and I might not have another caller available, so I would call them back as Steve with a completely different voice, completely different persona, and they would say, "Oh my God, you're so great!" And they would call back and start asking for Steve. They would like suddenly, you know, they they would be unfaithful to David for a while and start talking to Steve. <laughs> Sometimes there would be elaborate fantasies, and they, they they would say, "Well, I want I have this fantasy about you know." fill in the blank, whatever, you know. Then I'm on the beach in a foreign country and somebody approaches me and we have sex on the beach, whatever it is. I mean, most of them were harmless enough. Um, um, sometimes they were taboo fantasies that uh, were things that uh, you certainly wouldn't want to be doing in real life. And we, we were very careful about that. We were like, okay, if this is just weird and kinky and weird, that's okay. But if this is Discussing something illegal, or uh, something traumatic, or something that is uh, abusive—we're not going to do it. You know, we we, even though we're just talking about it. No thanks. We're not. We're we're not going to do that. Um, It
0: it sounds like you got those kinds of calls.
1: Yes, we did. I. We would. We would. Um, uh, And sometimes it was uh, skating on a line where I wasn't sure. Is this bad? Is this wrong? I'm not even sure. You know, like, you know, there was a person that wanted an older, uh, an older daddy type. And so I'm doing my older daddy thing, and suddenly he's starting to talk like he is my little girl. <laughs> okay, well, let's unpack that. Is that bad if he's taking on the role of a little girl, that that's what's coming up for him? What does that make me? And is that cool? I'm not sure. I don't think so. So there were kind of moral ambiguities there are not so amb- ambiguous. Um, there were also people that called who were well-known. We had customers who had famous names on their credit card. Um, we had a customer who who was famous. You know, I was a theater I was a theater major, you know, I, I did theater growing up, and there was a playwright growing up that I uh, idolized, that I adored, this playwright that had um, <clears throat> very strange uh, plays that, that were very strange and avant-garde at the time, and he became a customer of ours. I just fell out of my chair. The first time that he called and I realized oh my god it's so and so and I forget what he requested I know what he requested he didn't care what the person looked like he just wanted them to be creative I'm like oh my god my, my playwright literary idol wants someone creative I'm so, I'm so I was so intimidated but I had to do the call <laughs> I had to do it because I wanted to be the one to talk to him um, did you, and, did you uh, feel like you were auditioning Yes, I did. I felt like I I wanted to say, oh, and by the way, Mr. So-and-so, I I admire your work so much. (laughs) But I did not. I did not.
0: What what kind of calls did you like having?
1: Um, There were a lot of sweet, very sweet, um, very kind people that I talked to over time and um, who uh, were isolated And really, there were some older gentlemen that I talked to that I don't believe were capable of sex. And it's funny, they would fake it right along with me. But they were much more interested in having the pillar talk and talking about our lives. And they would share about, they would ask me questions about my life. And they just wanted somebody to talk to. And then I would get to the sex talk and they would fake it. And I'm faking it. And they're faking it because they're elderly and not really interested in that. And so we fake it for a few minutes and get through that part of it. And then they would get back to talking about life because that's really the companionship that they were looking for. Occasionally, uh, a man would call and say, you know, call to speak to a woman. And say, said, how come you're, how come dudes are answering th- this phone? Well, why are there dudes in the office and not women? And we would explain, we have men and women to talk to men or women. What? You have dudes that talk to other dudes? And we're like, yes. And he'd say every once in a while, can I talk to one? <laughs> and then, of course, everyone's scrambling to get to talk to that guy because there's got to be a story there. You know, you want to see what what does this heterosexual guy that always has talked to women in the past and has just discovered that he can talk to a man, really? And he wants to? <laughs> That's an interesting call coming, you know, so, so uh, you know, uh, to, for someone to get to do. There were things that you could pretty much count on in terms of the, the sorts of things that, that, that gay men were requesting. It, it was, I will say this, it was fascinating from an anthropological standpoint to hear firsthand over the course of years what was going on in the minds of gay men, thousands of gay men, when their credit card was on the line and they would blurt out what they really wanted. Fascinating. And I would later become, I'm an AIDS activist. I've been doing AIDS work now for over 30 years. That's what I did when I left the phone sex industry. I thought I was gonna die of AIDS anyway. So I went to work in the AIDS arena, in the HIV arena. And to be able to to later design prevention programs for gay men, uh, and do that informed by what I knew gay men—how they behaved, how they thought, what they wanted um, sexually—was very came in very very handy. It was again anthropologically a fascinating kind of experiment to to hear their you know uh, most intimate thoughts and it all comes down to this you know here are the takeaways one we all want to be taken care of everybody wants to be taken care of it doesn't matter how masculine you are how big you are how you know how you present chances are you want someone more masculine bigger and more able to take care of you and from a sexual standpoint that manifests itself in a top 95% of the guys that called me wanted a top, wanted someone to fuck them. And uh, I believe that is not simply because everybody wants to bottom. I don't think that that's true. I don't think that that's actually the actual percentage. But I think that ultimately when you're paying for it and you want the ultimate sexual partner, what you want is someone who is capable of taking care of you, who is stronger than you, who is more capable than you, more confident than you. And, uh, and that's what they, that's at the end of the day, what they all wanted. It didn't matter if that person was hairy or smooth or any of that. They wanted big dicks, of course, but again, that's kind of a manifestation of being bigger and uh, more masculine than you. That's what they wanted.
0: Wow. Wow, now let's talk about AIDS and how that shaped your industry and your experience as a phone sex, a fantasy artist and an owner of this business.
1: It was not a consideration when the business, certainly when I started in the business, it wasn't a consideration, it wasn't something that had encroached on my community or among my friends yet. It was something kind of off in the distance. 1981, 1982. And uh, certainly by the time I had started my own company, 1983, 84, 85, um, it was was drawing nearer. And uh, certainly it was in the news a lot. It was something that customers would mention as kind of their rationale for calling us which may or may not have been true. Maybe they were just lonely and couldn't get laid elsewhere. I mean, that's probably the case as well. I, rem- I, knew- I remember when it had really arrived, AIDS had really arrived when one of my customers during a call, you know, we're going through the sex on the call. And he talked about, he described, reaching in his nightstand for a condom to put on me before we had sex and I thought to myself Wow Wow you know HIV and AIDS has so permeated this guy's sexual psyche that even on a fantasy call where there is no risk at all he's reaching for the condom and there's something profound about that that made me realize first of all good for him second of all How kind of him to be thinking of our safety, both of our safety, to do that. And then, wow, this is really scary in a way that it it must be here, AIDS must have arrived, that, uh, that this is something that has worked its way into his fantasy choreography.
0: That's so stunning. Was that a one-off, or did it become a recurring feature of
1: your conversation? It um, it became a fetish. You know, I mean, God knows there were lots and lots of fetishes of various types. You know, you name it, somebody talked about it at some point. Um, But uh, rubbers and condoms and whatnot became kind of a fetish. They had never been one before. But it was almost like the uh, like gay men were absorbing condoms into their their sexual fantasy vocabulary, and uh, so they were talking about it, even if it was about um, you know you know I want you to squirt so hard, you fill the condom up so big, you know whatever it was. In other words, they were fetishizing. And incorporating condoms into what they thought was sexy, and I thought, and I thought, wow, good for them. You know, this is wow. That is a uh, that is a triumph of HIV prevention. That these guys are actually incorporating it into their fantasy life.
0: Good. Do you remember when you first heard about AIDS?
1: Um, not long after it arrived on the scene. Um, even you know, I, I mean, the first was it 1981 that the first. Uh, cases were reported in 1981, yeah, 1981. The first cases were reported in the New England Journal of Medicine and then in the New York Times, within a couple of years, of course, we had an epidemic on our hands. And uh, I remember when it first started thinking to myself, oh, those are sleazy people. This is for people who stay out all night or they're into all sorts of kinky stuff. That's who that is. Um, you know, doing what I could to to separate out from the coming storm, and uh, and of course, you know, uh, it wasn't long before it was clear that no, this is something that is um, threatening all of us, everybody. And um, as that became to be more be, be more clear, at first it was like, oh well, okay, well it's a good business model. I guess people will call us more because of AIDS. Well, (laughs) that might that might have been true, as cynical as it was. um, But for me as a human being and my sense of altruism, I did have one. I I wasn't just this guy making a buck off of people's fantasies. I saw what it was what was happening in my own community there in Los Angeles. And I wanted to do something. I I, I wanted to do something um, about it and so and in in 1985 i still had the company and uh the hiv test came out they had discovered the virus and the hiv test was released to the public i took it immediately the week it came out on march 15th, 1985 and tested positive so i was hiv positive at least from 85 probably i imagine was infected in 81 when I moved to uh, Los Angeles, the year I moved to Los Angeles and was having all sorts of wild sex with the locals. So uh, now here I am HIV positive and suddenly the, uh, the allure of running a phone sex company talking about sex 24-7 was losing, uh, you know, the bloom was off the rose. And I thought to myself, I've got to do something else. This, this can't be it. You know, this can't be it. And I sold the company to one of my uh, competitors. Uh, a guy in San Francisco had a, had a company. I can't remember his name or that company yet, but we were friendly. He was another phone sex you know, uh, owner and we were friendly. And, uh, and I sold it to him and I went to work for an AIDS agency, one of the first in Los Angeles. And I figured this will be the last job I ever have. So I'll just do this till I die. I'm sure it'll be a couple of years. And uh, much to my surprise, I didn't. I didn't. And, uh, and that began my, uh, my career, uh, working for community-based organizations, um, designing programs uh, to prevent HIV among gay men, uh, then becoming the head of an agency, moving to Atlanta to lead a large uh, uh, HIV service agency. And now I write and speak as a long-term survivor, as someone who's been living with this for a really long time, um, about what the crisis is like today and what it all means. And it's funny, I don't think back about my phone sex days as much uh, anymore. Uh, Having this conversation is is a conversation I have not had in a long time. Um, And yet it's interesting how much it did inform me in terms of sexual the sexuality of gay men and what their wants and desires are including the simple desire to be loved and to be taken care of and to be treated respectfully and to talk about sex in a way that didn't shame them or make them feel perverted or like less of a human being because they were gay and you can't have you can't have hiv prevention that is effective if you don't treat gay men like full sexual human beings that are worthy of respect and love and uh satisfaction and and i learned that early on because of my years working in phone sex and it has informed my life ever since
0: do you do you remember your last uh phone sex phone call for this industry
1: Um, yes, I do. And it was with a man named Al that I had spoken to for years. Uh, Al would call two or three times a week. And Al was an elderly man and, uh, retired, uh, clearly had disposable income, uh, isolated, lived in a small town, um, and really just needed companionship. And I remember the call because. I really sincerely meant it when I told him how much I would miss talking to him. Because even though I was David, even though I was this phone sex persona that he had always gotten used to, he, he, he touched me because he was a kind older man that, that needed uh, companionship and reassurance and uh, affection. And, um, and wanted just to hear about my life. And was delighted in the fact that I remembered him and that we had private jokes between us and all of those sorts of things. And I remember our last phone call together because he wanted very much to continue talking to me. I was selling the company, I was packing it away and handing it off to my competitor that I had sold it to. And and Al very much wanted to keep talking to me. And I could have. I could have just continued calling him and having him send me a check or something, you know. Um, but I knew I had to make a break from this, that I didn't want to continue having to do that. And um, and so I had to say goodbye. And it was like a very sad breakup um, with a man that uh, was very, always been very kind to me. And there was never any, obviously, any conflict, you know. Um, and uh, I remember him asking more than once are you sure you won't call me again are you sure i can't speak to you again and uh i said you know maybe one day buddy we'll see maybe one day and uh, uh and of course i didn't and so I, I i think of him uh when i think about those days i think of al and uh what, what a kind man he was and the fact that he kind of represents the fact that uh, that industry to me and those sorts of relationships were not what people might think. You know, we were, um, were different than people might think.
0: I, I hear the sadness in your voice as you reflect on it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Is it? You know, I mean, you, you know, gosh, how many hours, how many hours uh, over the years did I talk to him? And, um, and again a lot of it was just reassurance and a lot of it was his, him living vicariously through David this hot man about town you know uh, uh, who was gay and proud of it and having all sorts of great sex and all of that you know um, and, and, and relating to Al relating to this customer as his buddy um, yeah it's um, um, I'm glad I was able to speak to him as long as I did and I'm sorry that it I'm sorry that it ended and I'm sorry for him and like I say I uh, you know um, for many years I thought to myself I hope Al's doing okay now I'm sure he's passed on by now but he uh, he was uh, you know he was a kind sweet man
0: is, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you would like to speak about regarding no, your I recollect
1: think, we've covered just about mm-hmm. all of it the business side and uh, the men, the women, the you know, uh, whatnot. I think uh, you've asked everything I can think of. You've gotten you've gotten all my best stories. I think, <laughs> <laughs> and then and they are they are really
0: great, and this has been so helpful. Thank you so much for your time today. It was really great getting
1: to hear your story. You're welcome. Bye bye. Bye bye.
0: Sexing History is produced by Rebecca Davis, Sunili Ganawi, Devin McGee and much more, Jane Swift, Lauren Gutterman, and me. Our intern is Alexi Glover. Sexing History is made possible with generous funding from a 2018 media production grant from the Humanities Media Project in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas, Austin. The Humanities Media Project aims to tell human stories and invite critical conversations that educate, inspire, and connect communities. They believe that the humanities play a crucial role in maintaining a healthy, democratic society. If you're enjoying our show, you can help new listeners find us. Please review us on Apple Music and share us on social media. To stay up to date on all things Sexing History, or to send us a note, visit us on our website, www.sexinghistory.com. From all of us at Sexing History, thank you for listening.